Hello and welcome to Seven Talks, the digital digestive designed to bring together the best work coming out of the seven stars and from across the media galaxy. I'm Amelia. I'm Ben. I'm Fran. And I'm Sarah. And we are back with a slightly different format this time. Instead of just reading out our What's Hot articles, we've chosen our favourite topics to discuss. However, if you do want to have a good read-through, all What's Hot articles from this month's and any previous months are available on our website or head to our Twitter for links to each one. Later on in the podcast, we'll also be discussing brand jargon, a piece of research we've done with Trinity Mirror. So our first topic is around Netflix from Pioneer to Powerhouse. Uh, I find this actually fascinating because Netflix has increased its viewership over the last year by 45%, making it the sixth biggest channel in the UK. It's at a time where Netflix are considering moving to some sort of ad-funded model, or at least that's what the industry is having us think. I think it's interesting because I think Netflix has spent so much time and money over a relatively short period of time really, really building up the brand. So what I'm curious about is, for example, if they do move towards a kind of semi-paid subscription model, maybe, where, you know, you pay less money, but you get ads or um, whether, you know, it becomes certain programs become free in exchange for like allowing advertising to penetrate the platform. Um, I'm, I'm really curious if it will damage the Netflix brand because it's such a pure thing, right, as a streaming platform. That feels like the most likely scenario, um, in the sense that they'll they're, they're they're reaching a plateau in in new users and they are not upping their rates. So the value exchange for a consumer with Netflix is particularly good, if I'm honest. Seven eight ninety nine a month, then you get all of that content. So the Spotify model would, I guess, bring down a barrier for some people around payment. Which eventually, if they got used to the quality content with the ads then they would either upgrade and pay or, you know, happily seek out the advertising that's there. Perhaps it's one where there's a lot of similar sort of sites where they're very selective over the brands that they actually allow advertising on. And I feel like with Netflix, they may not just purely open it up for anyone to, say, buy ads programmatically on Netflix. It may be one where actually it's more partnership level stuff. It's sponsoring of specific content categories, that kind of stuff, but with very selective brands that fit in with the sort of Netflix mould. I, th- I think that is more likely. I doubt that anytime soon, at least, they'd move into sort of spot uh, ads or airtime. I think it's far more likely that they'd start introducing the likes of ad-funded programming uh, or product placement, for example. I think I think what's interesting about the ad-funded pro- programming is that obviously that's already there. That's already got a very, very heavy presence on Netflix, if nothing else, purely because the amount of content that comes across from the US, which is clearly heavily, heavily ad-funded. So, for example, if you look like Nailed It, that's heavily, heavily sponsored by two or three different kind of baking brands um, in a way that actually we're not allowed to do with things like Great British Bake Off. So especially as kind of ITV has opened up the platform to ad-funded programming and it becomes... Uh, more more a thing which consumers are willing and happy to consume in exchange for quality programming. Actually, is that something that Netflix is going to push more as an agenda? I think the difference in the UK, especially compared to the US, is that we can access streaming services without ads. So the likes of BBC Three, for example, that was taken online a couple of years ago. And and you mentioned Killing Eve earlier. That's That's been huge. I watched that and I was able to watch that without seeing any ads because it is a BBC show. And I think especially compared to the US, where they're so used to ads on any TV station, channel, streaming service, 
because we have the likes of the BBC and because we're far more used to being able to access programming without sort of having to see ads, I think maybe it won't sit quite as well over here. I mean, is that a generational thing, though? You know, is there, is there a little bit of that that, you know, we've grown up with having the ability to access non and ad funded programming one whether that's like sort of standard advertising or whether that's kind of product placement and all of that kind of thing but is that something that actually is going to change and people are going to be a lot more comfortable with in the same way that we know millennials are kind of like 78 percent happy to consume branded content as long as it's something i want to watch i mean that's that's yeah, always the thing is that yeah. if people want to watch content they will watch it regardless of whether or not there is any kind of commercial intervention from a brand mm-hmm. If it's good content, it's good content. If Killing Eve was actually entirely paid for by Samsung, I mean, and they spend a lot of time on a phone in that, would you would you actually be like, would no. you would you actually be annoyed by it, or would it actually still be a really really good mm-hmm. television show that kind of is, is gradually gaining momentum? Like, I think every day someone walks up and goes, "Oh my god, have you seen Killing Eve?" Mm-hmm. Like, no one has walked up and said, "Oh, isn't it nice that I didn't have any advert?" <laughs> okay, quick question for everyone, just to wrap up this discussion. Um, Who's going to be the first brand to advertise around narcos? <laughs> my my bet is on my bet is on Duolingo. <laughs> my favorite article from this month's What Hot is about memes, and that's not because I literally have a meme calendar on my desk at work. It's actually because meme marketing is a super interesting topic at the minute and looking at the way that brands are getting involved, trying to get involved and sometimes shouldn't have got involved in it (laughs) is something that actually is um, really an interesting topic. In general, the meme accounts across social channels are absolutely massive. Some of the largest ones, Epic Funny, for example, they have like over 50 million followers. And you can generally assume that this is against a younger demographic. So for brands to try and get to this harder to reach, as we'll touch on later on the Fortnite chat as well, is a very good opportunity, but there's a very difficult sort of space that you need to navigate and be very careful about. First question to the room, which is the most important one, favourite memes, go. Um, My favourite meme, and one I use a lot, is the one of Homer Simpson backing into a hedge. Mine is probably, um, well, there's a few from Making a Murderer, which I absolutely love, but my favourite is probably um, Can I Buy a Boat Cat? So the cat sat at the dining table with his paper, looking very profound, as, you know, clearly represents exactly how I am and feel. I'm not sure, I'm not sure I've seen that one. Oh, it's good. Okay. It's good. I don't know my memes, apparently. <laughs> um, no, the, the recent one that I, I've been enjoying is the moth memes. Always makes me laugh. Mine is the one of the cartoon dog who's stood in a room that's just burning down and he's smiling and then the speech bubble is, this is fine. Which, I don't know why I like it so much. Maybe it's a reflection of my life on too many occasions. But it's a good one. Check it out if you haven't seen it for sure. Hashtag life stages. Yeah. Um, I think I think what's really interesting about memes is when brands get it really, really wrong. So, for example, um, I don't know if everyone is aware of the phenomenal uh, Tumblr women laughing alone with salad. Yes. Um, no. <laughs> so basically, basically, for anyone who isn't, it's it's an entire Tumblr where people just get stock photos of women 
with a salad on their own and they're just <laughs> laughing hysterically. Because oh, salads know? are funny. Sal- <laughs> I'm so happy. I've got a Caesar salad. I mean, it's proper, you know. Oh, Greek salad. <laughs> but um, one, one example of a, a brand slightly killing it in the US was Wendy's, who decided to do an entire social campaign of women laughing alone with Wendy's salads. Someone in their team really did not get the point yeah. of of the whole phenomenon of women laughing alone with salads. So I think it's one of those things which you do need to be very careful and very sensitive to the nuances behind the kind of meme culture because they have such a specific meaning. What is your thoughts in terms of which brands should be actually looking to this as a viable option? Because I guess naturally it skews to brands that are already cool and already engaging that sort of younger demographic. Um, but is it something that maybe more established brands, maybe more brands that are sort of typically speak to a um, older generation of audience? Do we think it's safe bet just to stick away from it all entirely? Or do you think there's actually has got the potential to be used in a sort of positive way? I think it comes back to authenticity. If a brand is just if it feels like it's just trying too hard to be funny, it, it just won't go down well. And it could even damage the reputation of the brand. It won't just get lost amongst the other memes, but could it could even end up being quite damaging because people will just end up making fun of that brand. So I feel like it does have to it does have to be a brand that, that feels like it can sort of engage in that conversation and, and be in that space. For me, it's very much about the use case. So if a, if a brand uh, in its customer service on Twitter is, you know, replying with, funny memes and and, and it's appropriate to that conversation then fine I think one brand that's sort of smashing internet culture so not just memes but also their use of emoji and things like that is actually McDonald's Mm -hmm. and again it's it's a brand that's trying very hard to continue to appeal to a younger demographic it's price accessible for a younger demographic and it's very much somewhere they hang out but they've actually got at the moment um uh, ads which have the the chicken nugget dipped in ketchup and it's the time I spend thinking about chicken nuggets versus the time I spend eating chicken nuggets which is obviously a it's not quite a meme but it's it's definitely something yeah. that's gone around the internet so they're they, they've adapted that very well but there are other examples of for example car brands who've tried to go down you know less the meme but more the emoji side of things and you know you don't expect to see that from VW mm-hmm. um, it's probably not quite right I think there's an interesting thing there when a brand takes it on is that it all becomes about meme, meme, meme. See what I did there? Oh, that was, nice. um, do you know what I mean? So it becomes about them and actually the whole point of things like memes and GIFs is that it's an indirect reference. I think actually brands have to be really, really clever in their use and understand that actually if you're going to use a meme, use it in the way that it's supposed to be done. Don't try and stick a heavy-handed brand message in it. So the work that's really got me excited this month um, in What's Hot is um, a conversation about Fortnite and especially centering around how it impacts on youth culture. So for anyone who doesn't know, Fortnite is an online computer game where up to 80 players compete in a battle royale to be the last player standing or you can compete in a more collaborative way if you really want to. And ultimately, the weirder side of it is that you also get to build buildings. So currently it's on about 125 million players strong Um, and interestingly it's beginning to have a massive impact on the world of streaming so going back to our Netflix conversation 
So uh, Ninja, who is a pro gamer, um, especially known on the Fortnite platform, recently did a live stream with Drake um, and they got 628,000 views on Twitch, which is Twitch's biggest live stream to date. I think it's very interesting its relation to things like Minecraft and Pokemon Go. Um, so I don't know if anyone knows this, but Pokemon Go actually has had its biggest, um, biggest month uh, in May this year exactly the same numbers as when it first launched in 2006 so it's actually had a massive rise it's up 174 percent profit wise year on year pokemon go so it's very interesting because it's something that we think is dead mm. we're on to the new shiny thing which is fortnite minecraft as well um they've got more players month on month than fortnite mm. so it's very interesting how these kind of like vogue things are sort of very much falling into the laps of brands and they're paying attention but actually is there also an aspect where they're assuming if it's popular culture and it's not new and shiny anymore is it also dead and are we ignoring platforms which we really should be uh, joining in the fun and playing with more yeah i think what's interesting about fortnite is that it's not just stereotypical gamers playing it because it's open and free to access across all different platforms from you know your gaming consoles to ios and android it means that anyone and everyone can play it and we've seen that in in the way that it has just gone mainstream so you mentioned drake for example playing with ninja but the way that it's sort of moved itself into popular culture so even football players for example when they score they'll celebrate with a fortnite inspired dance and it's just everywhere before i even fully understood what fortnite was i was watching people do the dance from the game so it's just everywhere even if you don't really understand it or if you're not a player you will know someone who is or you will have seen some references to it um, the other thing I also forgot to say that's really interesting about the article is that um, Twitch has been ad free for a really long time and then kind of for the back of this massive success. Um, so they've done partnerships, but they haven't done spot ads um, or display ads in the same way. Um, and actually what happened with the, um, I think it was Warner Brothers for the Meg, they put um, around a lot of Fortnite live streams. They, they put badging and adverts for the first time and actually Amazon has opened up the Twitch platform um, to more commercial opportunities. And I, I think this is really interesting, especially when you look at what's going on in terms of gaming as a wider opportunity. So for example, MasterCard taking over the sponsorship of like one of the biggest esports leagues in the world. Um, you wouldn't expect MasterCard <laughs> necessarily to wade in on esports. There's a general misconception that say, especially watching gaming on the likes of Twitch and the likes of YouTube is almost like a completely separate thing to watching something on Netflix like we discussed earlier. In actual fact, it's just ultimately content. I guess from a brand perspective, it's then almost shifting that mentality to being like, and emphasized by the MasterCard sponsoring the eSports League, it's not It's not anymore, I know we say this probably every year with like the conversation came out when Candy Crush went big, for example. <laughs> it's not teenage boys in their locked in their room playing sort of for 24 hours straight mm. on a sort of playstation it's people playing on their phones on the way into the tube with fortnite now playstation just um have released crossplay so you can now play playstation versus switch versus sort of mobile yeah. all those devices so actually it's it is it's nephews it's cousins playing against dads mums it's everyone playing each other and actually it is just a mainstream opportunity for brands and I think it's good that Fortnite has come out and gone this big because I think it's helping that transition for brands yeah. to stop thinking of it in that very sort of niche way of the teenage boy in the bedroom and just thinking that gaming in general is 
massive and everyone games if you don't think you're game you're probably wrong you do yeah. you, you are a gamer and, and with the development in kind of cinematic technology and um, handheld augmented or mixed reality whatever you want to call it wherever it's going I think actually there's going to be a massive blurring of the lines between cinema gaming you know uh, social interaction it wouldn't surprise me if at some point we sort of live in this massive blended pseudo cinematic sort of communications environment well, that's exactly like in her you know you know in the film her where he's playing this sort of augmented reality game and that's just his entire world outside of work that is what we're going towards if, if i if i have to live with scarlett johansson talking to me <laughs> 24 hours a day i will do that amelia i'm absolutely fine with that um but yeah i think i think maybe we are like why shouldn't we gamify more aspects of life more aspects of what we do with brands mm. you know and it, it does that mean pigging piggybacking off something that's going on and that's culturally relevant to the audience we're talking about or does that mean actually we try and invent something new or, or you know work with kind of alphabet who kind of invest a lot with kind of um so they were one of the key investors in pokemon go for example you know should we try and find those really early doors and see if there's anything we can do as brands again like we were talking about netflix you know can we add fund programming can we add fund gaming next up we're going to talk about experiential brands are really now waking up to this so Every week you'll see a sort of new brand experiential. Um, some are better than others. Some are just sort of pop-ups in, in train stations or, or in malls. Some are sort of huge events or, or longer-term residencies. It, it's spoken about all the time that especially the younger generations, they really want those experiences. You're, you're always seeing stats about how young people would much rather spend their money on a play on a, on an event on a holiday than any sort of physical object we know that the kind of under 35s they've they've grown up in a lipstick economy do you want to know what that is um so a lip a lipstick economy is an economic theory which says that you know when you're going into a period of recession or when people are particularly cash strapped because instead of spending on houses actually um that drops massively but the sales of lipstick go up hugely and ex expensive lipstick as well the kind of 20 30 40 quid lipstick because that scene is like a carefully curated accessible treat you know it's driven by social media it's driven by people wanting to present a version of themselves um to the world and and making sure that that is as i think you said thoroughly instagrammable um what i think is interesting though is the development in what was a brand experience 10 years ago versus what a brand experience is now. What we're seeing more and more of are the collaborations with people like Secret Cinema. Are people having conversations with us about what can we do that we can wholly own? What's really fascinating for me is the fact that certain categories have license to do it better than others. So actually a lot of the good examples I can think of come from alcohol brands and yeah. maybe that says a lot about me <laughs> 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 however you know um, even close to where uh, Seven Stars is based um, all summer and this has been for the last few summers Peroni have taken over Somerset House if it's food if it's drink you you naturally as a brand have an opportunity to do something cool and physical it's probably harder if you are a tampon brand for example i mean i'd be interested to try and see a tampon brand have a <laughs> have a really good stab at it and i don't i don't think it's impossible i just think again mm. you like like everything in this kind of like outside the traditional spots and space marketing 
there are nuances and you have to be very sensitive to them. So for example, I agree with you that alcohol brands do it very well, but also alcohol brands do it very, very badly. final segment if you like before we go into all the cool stuff we love this month and give you a little sneak preview of our recent research we did with trinity mirror all around brand jargon um titled brand jargon is there a language barrier so the purpose of this was really to understand whether there's a bit of a disconnect between how we talk about brands and talk about um products and and the way consumers do so we very much had a hypothesis that within the industry we're not really using words and phrases that actually mean anything to Joe blogs on the street um, and actually and in the most benign cases that could be a little bit confusing but it actually at worst it would be actively irritating for consumers so we did a three-stage research study um, where we talked with some sort of qual diaries initially we then did some depth interviews and finally uh, reinforced it quantitatively with um, a thousand people what was really interesting from the results was whilst our hypothesis was correct that there is a disconnect between what we say and what they're hearing, it actually goes beyond it to the extent where even between individuals there's a real difference in how they perceive certain things. So for example, the uh, phrase forward thinking takes on a very different meaning depending on loads of different um, factors. Some think that a forward thinking brand is one that's socially responsible. Uh, others think much more literally and actually associate it with the brand's ability to help me plan ahead in life. For example, the train line was uh, cited as being a forward-thinking brand, not necessarily because it's a super innovative platform, but just because it literally helps you plan ahead. I, I could not believe when I heard that. That is that is not at all how I would understand forward-thinking. I'd very much think of a, of a techie brand, of somewhere that feels like it's ahead of the curve. And I wouldn't even consider that sort of definition of forward-thinking. So actually, Amelia struck onto a really good point that we surveyed uh, media agency types and media owner types, as well as, you know, Joe Bloggs, the public. And it was really interesting. Again, another one that we thought was quite funny was about a brand that's innovative. So what springs to my head is something like an Airbnb or an Uber, you know, very much born of the digital age. Some consumers pulled out bold two in one. Head and shoulders two in one. <laughs> things that literally, um, you know, they're innovative because they combine two things in one place. So what this really sort of said to us is the fact that we use these phrases as sort of throwaway commentary. We say, you know, you need to be innovative, you need to be forward thinking, you need to be a brand for someone like them. And actually, that is, if we're measuring success in that way, we're actually dooming ourselves to failure because we're not entirely understanding what they mean. So is there an aspect that we are losing sight of what is actually interesting and, and has impact on the lives of our audience? It's something that Trinity Mirror have done a lot of research on. So they recently did a piece um, about not trusting your gut instinct where they mapped the value systems of modern mainstream consumers against the value systems of marketeers. And surprise, surprise, they were quite different. Um, but, you know, this people can see this as a knock to our industry, but what we see it as is a bit of a wake-up call. I think a stat that really sort of hit this home to me uh, was that as part of that Trinity Mirror research, they found out that 92% of people in media industries voted to remain in the Brexit vote. And clearly that was not what was voted for by the general public. This is really interesting when you build on all the work that we've done so far this year. So, for example, we've talked about, you know, the research we've done around diversity and, and pulling in sort of multiple studies and really analysing and digging into those. Are there any recommendations off the back of this coming forward, do you reckon? Is there stuff that we can 
action that will actually make a difference and help us burst the bubble? I think so, because I think, um, you know, this was, uh, I guess, arguably a piece of research into research, which obviously I loved. Um, (laughs) So beyond, you know, it's it's fascinating for researchers because, you know, every brand has some form of brand tracking in place. And I would argue that in 99% of cases, they've got a statement battery somewhere that says it's a brand for people like me. It's a premium brand. It's a brand I love. And we track these, you know, we track these against campaigns, we use them as KPIs. And actually, are we putting KPIs in place that don't really mean anything or mean something completely different between consumers or don't really apply to our brand? So it actually um, asks for a more thorough understanding of how consumers perceive the category and the brands within it before we then decide how to measure success. It also helps us understand how our brand strategy should talk in a consumer voice so we do use a lot of jargon as an industry and where we can strip that out and speak like normal humans (laughs) um, I think we'll all benefit Um, you know things like um, being a loved brand that's a very difficult concept and yet I've read God knows how many brand strategies where we want to be the most love, insert category here, brand. Yeah. Sanitary products, for example, like a deodorant or, yeah. you know, a, a packet of sanitary gloves are never going to be loved. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's funny, it's funny, right? And yet you kind of see that in the advertising, you see that in, in what they're trying to do often. Um, and, and that's often when you get the weird disconnect and you get sort of women in white cycling shorts uh, on roller skates because they want to be loved and seen as fun. And actually you're like, that's not the scenario in which I use you in my everyday life. Before we go, we're going to leave you with October's cool stuff we love. This month's podcast recommendation is the Mighty Serial. That started as a spin-off of This American Life in 2014 and almost singularly took podcast mainstream as well as launched an entire spin-off genre of serialised true crime podcasts. In that first season, host Sarah Koenig delved into a murder case in Baltimore. She then returned for a second season to discuss a widely reported case of desertion by a US soldier, who was then captured by the Taliban. And now it's back. This latest season takes a different tack. It centres around a courthouse in Cleveland, Ohio, with Koenig discussing various cases that are taken to that court and using them to sort of more widely discuss the criminal justice system in the US. If it was the first season that made you a fan, don't expect it to be the same, but it does make for a fascinating listen. Now moving on to our What to Watch recommendation for this month. Um, And it's probably one that you've already heard of, but one we wanted to talk about, and it's the film Crazy Rich Asians. It's been out for a little while, but it's still in cinemas because it's absolutely flying. Um, aside from being a brilliant film and doing ridiculous numbers, it's um, at the end of September was grossing at $218 million worldwide and it had a production of about $30 million. So they're doing very well for themselves with that one. It's actually been really important from a cultural perspective too. So it has a predominantly Asian cast and this meant that it particularly struck a chord with the Asian American audiences as one of the first sort of major Hollywood films to really depict what life is like within those communities. Not in a sort of on the nose way you perhaps saw on similar films sort of five, ten years ago, but just one that sort of subtly and accurately depicts their cultural nuances and relates to them on a personal level. And I think what's really um, exciting about this is 
that is also coming of the year where we had Black Panther 2. So Black Panther grossing over $1.3 billion um, and really, again, connecting with those African communities. So what's great to see is that Hollywood is maybe a little bit too late to the party, <laughs> but it's finally sort of catching up with actually aligning major blockbuster films and really, really good films with those different cultures. This month, we're going to recommend a uh, new read for you all. And in October, we're suggesting the provocative and mildly terrifying near future predictions of Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari. It's the much lauded follow up to um, Sapiens, which was an international bestseller back in 2015. And Homo Deus takes you through a brief history of tomorrow. So where old belief systems are coupled with new technologies and the impact of our oldest fears are now mostly invalid in terms of little disease, famine, war. So where will we go next? It's both disturbing and reassuring in equal measure and the sort of book for which you really crave a long train journey to get your teeth into. So get yourself down to Wartstones, pick up a copy on Amazon and dig in. And this month, my experiential recommendation for you. Obviously, we have Halloween coming up and uh, one of my favourite cinema companies um, specialising in unique experiential opportunities is Luna Cinema. So traditionally, they started out as an outdoor cinema club, um, obviously Luna, because it starts quite late at night. But they are actually moving indoors for this particular Halloween screening um, and they're doing it at the iconic Natural History Museum's Hints Hall. So... Um, It'll be very atmospheric, very beautiful, um, lots of stuffed taxidermy monkeys everywhere, which uh, to me seems the perfect place to watch The Shining, Blair Witch Project, Ghostbusters or The Silence of the Lambs. Well, sadly, that's all we have time for on this month's Seven Talks. Liked it? Then please leave a five star review on the podcast platform of your choice and make sure while you're there to hit subscribe to stay up to date with all the goings on here at The Seven Stars. Any thoughts, feedback or questions, tweet at The Seven Stars or drop the team an email. So that's all from us now. Till next month. Bye. Bye. So for anyone listening, there appears to be some sort of small squeaky alien invasion <laughs> happening around us. Someone uh, dragging a corpse above you. <laughs> Across the floor above us. The body of the previous agency who <laughs> insisted on recording a podcast once a month. Um, <laughs> um, sorry, Amelia, back to what you were saying.